Welcome to Bethlehem Church Online. I'm Pastor Matt. I'm so excited that you decided to join us for worship today. I hope the singing and preaching of God's Word is uplifting and it gives you just what you need. I'm not sure where you are in your relationship or your walk with the Lord, uh, but I want today to be a blessing. I want you to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that today is encouraging and that it's just what you need. If it's your first time, make sure to click the link in the post and fill out that form. We have a free gift for you following today's service. Thank you so much for joining us and enjoy the service. Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And if you don't have your Bibles, no worries. We will have it on the screen. But we're finally getting into uh, the, the text, the book that we've been kind of getting a running start and going towards. Um, and, and I am excited about it. If you come to the senior Bible study, a few of you are here, most of you are at nine. Uh, there is no senior Bible study this week. I'll be out of town. Um, so just uh, FYI, that way we don't have to call you last minute. Um, but no, no senior Bible study this week. Everybody else, I'm not sure what they're doing with their group. So uh, just uh, make sure you check out your, your chat. Uh, but for us, it's easier to just make that announcement in here for that particular Bible study. We are having a connect group at our house tonight. Um, so anybody's welcome. That's at five o'clock and there will be food. And so thank you guys for, uh, we, we pulled a report this week. 82 of you have gotten involved in a group. That's huge. That's huge. Uh, and we were like maybe 30, 35 people counting the children here on Wednesday nights. And we were wondering if it was going to be okay, uh, just going to, to groups. And we've gone from seven or eight, uh, different groups happening uh, throughout the week. So it is, it's more work, but it's more volunteers, more people pitching in. And we've got people meeting here uh, all throughout the week and in homes. Uh, and the average attendance has jumped to, it's probably more than nine now, um, but we're, we're hovering around that nine. And so get involved in a group. These messages, what we're doing, uh, and some they can, people can do whatever they want. They can have the the leader uh, can go through a, a Bible study, um, but specifically through our Sunday sermons, we're doing questions at the end. So in the program, you can find the whole outline, and then also uh, questions like thought provoking questions from the application portion of the message will also be in your program. But uh, to see the groups go to 82 of you have uh, gotten involved or plugged in. That's huge. It's unbelievable. Um, and visitors are coming. Visitors, visitors are coming to our church every week. We, ha we have some nearly every week in the 9 and the 11. Uh, so it's just exciting. So uh, go online. Our website is um, you know, fairly intuitive at this point, but you can find a group there and request to join, get involved. And uh, I'm just excited to see what the Lord is doing. It, it means that we have over doubled our midweek service going to the, the small groups, and, and that's really, really exciting. So uh, let's jump in. Um, we've gotten a, a real a big running start going into this uh, series, and so really dialing into Abraham, the story of origins from Genesis, the backdrop for the exile is Genesis 1 through 11. And so we're not really doing a, uh, a study on Genesis. Maybe we'll do that one in a few years. We'll see. Uh, but we're, we're going into the Exodus. And so we have to first see why is exile a thing? 
Why are these people uh, known as the Israelites finding themselves in a land not their own, oppressed and enslaved, and then eventually led out of that land? And so, um, you know, the, the reason is Genesis 1 through 9. So Genesis 1 through 9 gives us the tale, the threefold backdrop tale of why there is an exile. Uh, and if you're a Christian or a believer, or maybe you don't follow Jesus yet, maybe you're still, you know, you're, you're kind of taking your shoes off and dipping your toes in the pool, uh, you haven't jumped in yet, that's okay, uh, but maybe you're haunted with this question, and I get it a lot, online, who, maybe uh, those of you watching, uh, and the question a lot is, why do bad things happen to good people, Right? Uh, and first of all, I, retali- I, I, you know, I, I fire back with, you think you're a good person? <laughs> you know, anyway, that sounds like the prerequisite that they think. Um, but there's no such thing, right? There's no such thing as good people uh, because we're fallen. And so I don't mean that you can't be a good person or change or do good things, right? All of those things are possible with the Lord. Um, but we, we've kind of got it backwards for the most part. And so society... Uh, plays the victim. We think that we are victimized or we feel that because of what has been done to us, we don't deserve that, right? All of these things scripture undoes, not me, uh, the scriptures. They tell a different story. And it is our responsibility, Paul told us, rightly divide the word of truth. It's our responsibility to get into the word of God and figure out what what the biblical authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are trying to show and tell us. <laughs> show and tell. See what I did there? <laughs> anyway, uh, but the, the point, the perspective is uh, there's a unified story. There's a biblical worldview. And if your worldview doesn't align with what the scriptures say, then change your worldview. Don't try to manipulate scripture. I mean, we live in a society that just wants to rewrite everything because they don't like it. I don't like that. No, that, that's not a good message. I, I'm like, can you please change that and tailor it so that I like it? There's no growth that's going to happen. You will never be and reach the potential. You'll never be the person the Lord wants you to be if you're constantly asking the Lord to change instead of you changing to what he wants and what his desires are for your life. And so uh, apart from that, there's just biblical literacy. Look, I tell you all the time, I'm just a bumpkin. I don't know nothing. I just read a lot of books. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm giving you some of the things, uh, the biblical authors and scholars, and I, and I think that's a problem in America. It's a problem around our world, but you have folks that have been given the gift of teaching, and they're biblical scholars, and they're writing books, but then you have pastors who have the gift of exhortation and preaching, but we haven't connected the two. We haven't connected what scholars are doing uh, and what the pastors, they think they're biblical scholars and that they've got it figured out. No, (laughs) I don't for sure. And I'm sure that some pastors are scholars, uh, but that's not usually the case. And so I'm just doing my best to do my due diligence and connect for years. I, I sat in church and I was never exposed to the types of things that I'm exposing you to. And I don't know why. And so for me, it's like, look, I I just want to pull back the curtain a little bit and say, look, you can be grown and receive it. The Holy Spirit can work in your heart and in your life. I don't have to hold the keys to the kingdom. You understand? Everybody has a Bible, right? Uh, Everybody in this day and age has access to the same books. I'm Well, maybe not, but uh, I have a a pretty huge library, digital uh, library, but 
I'm not expecting you to, to dive into and study as much as I do. That's why you pay me, right? Uh, but at the, the end of the day, um, I just want to expose you to those things, the, the narrative, the biblical worldview that some are doing so good, like the Bible Project and Carmen Imes and uh, Michael Heiser, people that, that really influence me on the regular. Um, so I, I want to expose you to this biblical worldview, and I want you to see the perspective, see the, the text for what it is, and then the decision is yours if you want to change and align your heart to the heart of God. Um, so Anyway, we've really gotten a running start talking about Abraham. Uh, And so what we, in a brief introduction, what we've learned so far is that the reason bad things happen, the Lord did not create the world for that to happen. The world created, uh, God created uh, a situation where we can see a garden, mountaintop imagery. Mountaintops and gardens are motifs in scripture for the temple of God, for the place where God dwells. And so when the Bible says that the Lord created a garden and put man in it, uh, that's monumental. Uh, All the other ancient Near East religions have gods in mountaintops and gods in gardens and then all the other peasantry down here. Maybe there's a pharaoh or there's a king or there's a leader that goes between the two, but they don't coexist. But we serve a God that said, no, I'm going to create man in my image. They will bear my image. They will bear my name, and I will walk with them and talk with them, and we will have a relationship. Do you understand how radical that is? Do you understand how incredibly different that is from the narrative of the gods and then the, the humans? God says, no, there's a place where they intersect, and that's the garden. And that temple imagery uh, where the the garden is and where we meet and commune with God, that was uh, severed, that was broken, and mankind was driven out of the garden because of the fall. And so what we're seeing in Genesis 1 through 11 is that there is a cosmic battle happening. Why, why, Why do bad things happen? Why are there struggles in the world? Because there are forces of darkness, spiritual beings that God created, and, and Eden seemed to be this place, right, where spiritual and physical beings had relationships. And Eve was talking to this serpent. The Hebrew word really uh, gives us or tells the story that she was talking to a spiritual being. It's not like snakes talking, right? Uh, snakes don't talk. Uh, and, and so we try to, like, humanize the story. But really what it is is the, the biblical author is saying Eve was talking to a spiritual being. And we know that there was a rebellion in the unseen realm. And so the divine council, as it was meeting, and as, uh, as the Lord was, I'm trying to stay on point here, <laughs> as, as the Lord was working, yes, in the scene, but also in the unseen, those cosmic forces waged war on humanity. And so the fall, of, the, the fall of, of mankind, the sin that took place in the garden is one aspect. Genesis chapter 6, you fast forward, and we find that the sons of God, more supernatural beings doing bad things with humanity, the daughters of men. And because of that, the, the Lord said that he would destroy the earth in a flood. And so we know that he didn't. He didn't destroy uh, the world in a flood. There was one man, one man and an ark. Uh, the same Hebrew word is the same word that Moses, the one man, would be placed in an ark, uh, and his sister uh, prepared the ark with pitch. Does that sound familiar? 
right? And then the same ark that saved Noah and his family saved Moses, which in turn saves the children of Israel. It's the same story over and over again that scripture is telling. And the point is, is that the forces of darkness in Genesis 6 are doing the same thing that they've always done. They're rebelling against God. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 11. What else happens? The Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, uh, that same word Babel is Babylon. It's the first human city. It was man trying to recreate the Eden experience. It was man saying the Garden of Eden is where heaven and earth overlap, where the spiritual, where the seen and the unseen can commune. What did they say at the Tower of Babel? Let us make a name for ourselves. And when God was in the garden, he said, let us create man in our image. God has always wanted to have a relationship with his image bearers. He has always loved us. And maybe that's the thing. Maybe the unseen uh, had a a place of rebellion and pride from the perspective of how we had a relationship with God that was different. I'm not sure. Those are questions that will get answered one day. Uh, But the point is, is you can see in Genesis 11 that man tries to recreate the Eden experience by building a tower to heaven. And so God says, look, mankind, as long as they strive in this way, as long as they're led by the forces of evil, by the forces of darkness, there will always be sin and corruption. And so I will actually allow my name to be known in the world. The name, Abraham, uh, descendant from Shem, which literally means what? The name, if you've been following along in the series. And so the Lord chooses a people. He disinherits the nations of the world, and he chooses one as his inheritance, Father Abraham, right? And so we've learned, go back and listen to those two messages and and you'll see in detail how the Lord leads him out of exile, right? And into an Exodus experience unlike none other. And that's why we are here. We are co-heirs. We are of the same family. The church is the fulfillment of that as the Lord is redeeming all the nations back to himself through Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, but uh, we, we, we have to first see the backdrop for the Exodus story is Genesis 1 through 11. It is the fall. It is the uh, rebellious, unseen realm, the rebellious spiritual beings, and the Tower of Babel as the three points that the biblical author, the narrator of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they're trying to tell us this is why you are in exile, So to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? We are all in a bad place because of original sin and because of fallen angelic beings and rebellion against God. Do you understand? Do you see it? We all are in a cosmic struggle. We're all in a battle. Paul said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. We're in a battle for what the Lord knows is the new heaven and the new earth, the kingdom of God. And guess what? He wins. He has never what? Lost a battle as my sister Kaylee so eloquently put this morning. Come on. How many, how many of that blessed you? Come on. We went to church this morning, didn't we? Son. And it's just, uh, it's neat having some extra musicians on the stage. Come on. You guys are, are killing it. But uh, I want you to see the backdrop. Do we see it? Genesis 1 through 11. Bad things will continue to happen until Jesus ends it. And so the, the story of redemption, the story of the sacrifice is the payment, the price, based on the fact that we are caught 
We are in exile. And so as we study the children of Israel's exile out of Egypt, I want you to find your exile. I want you to see where you are in that place. I want you to see that you have found yourself in a place of wanting. And just like the Lord redeemed them, just means to buy back, led them out of Egypt. Look, I want you to be led out of. Maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you're new to following Jesus. I want you to understand everything he's done for me, guess what? He'll do for you because he loves you. Because there's a need, Genesis 1 through 11, and we find ourselves in exile. Okay, jumping into the first 14 verses, the literary design of the book of Exodus, one of my favorite, um, this is a, a lady theologian. This is what she does. She studies the Bible for a living. Uh, I, I love her outline of the book of Exodus. So inside the program is the whole outline. It's available to you for your own study. And um, she, she paints the picture here that the first part of Exodus is Moses and his Exodus out of Egypt. And then what we're going to see is the exact same story repeated with the children of Israel. So everything is a reenactment, and that's what I, want, what I want you to see. These biblical patterns, these patterns are very important. We know that they happened. We know that biblical authors all throughout the Old Testament talk about the Red Sea or the Reed Sea parting and them walking through. Why do they continue to talk about it and reference it in other books? Because it what? It happened. Right, And so it's not just something that is uh, figurative, it's literal, and they, and they take it for that. But that doesn't mean uh, that there isn't motifs or uh, other like typologies within the ancient Near East. Here's what you have to understand. There is a reason, there is a reason God chose this time period to reveal himself to us. You ever thought about that? Why didn't God choose now? <laughs> it would look different if God came to us in our days and in our ways, right? But God came to Moses in Moses' days and in Moses' ways, and, and I'm, I hope to reveal some of why. Uh, what was the ancient culture? What did they believe back then? We'll learn some of that. Exodus chapter one, verse number one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. That number happens a lot. You're going to see that uh, in the numerology aspect. We might get into some of that, but you'll see that it's 70. Joseph was already in what? In Egypt. So we're not going to tell the whole story of Joseph, but we're going to tell some of it. Joseph and all his brothers and all the generations eventually died, but Israelites were fruitful this is the blessing, the Edenic blessing that God gave in Genesis 1. We're seeing that fulfilled, right? So uh, they, uh, if I can find it here, they were fruitful, they increased rapidly, they multiplied and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. If you remember last week, the Abrahamic covenant prophesied that there would be 450 years of, of his descendants being oppressed uh, in Egypt. So I believe there's about 450 years here. Joseph was long gone uh, when this new Pharaoh, so that don't read that linearly. There's some time that, and, and the narrator is showing, it's revealing that to us, but the narrator also takes into account that we understand what the Abrahamic covenant was and that there would be 450 years. So that plays into this. 
A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, look at, this is the same Hebrew structure as the Tower of Babel. Come, let us build a tower. Watch what happens. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply what? Further, the Edenic blessing, humankind flourishing and subduing the garden was the original intent. And we're gonna see that. God's people always assumed that blessing of what we're gonna do uh, and what God's gonna do for us and the enemy always comes against. The enemy is always after uh, squashing the Edenic blessing, squashing uh, the blessing that God wants to give his people. Look at it. Come, let us deal shrewdly. Otherwise, they will multiply further. When war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But more, we'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. But the more they oppressed them, the more they what? (laughs) What the devil meant for evil, God meant for what? Uh Uh-huh multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came. Now that word dread, the Israelites, that that doesn't mean that they were scared of the Israelites. It means that when an Egyptian saw an Israelite, that their stomach was turned at the sight of them. It means that they grew to detest them as people. Um, Dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar, And in all kinds of field work, they ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Now, let's move quick. You listen fast, I'll talk fast, because I decided to do a 10-minute song again, all right? (laughs) As previously discussed, Israel is doing and continuing everything God had commanded them to do, except one thing, except one thing. Look at the Edenic blessing, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image and created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. God said to them, here it is, the Edenic blessing. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and what? Here's what I want you to see, the contrast that the narrator of the Pentateuch, we believe Moses really controlled this work, right? Is that God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue. What's happening in Exodus, right out of the gate is they're being fruitful, they're multiplying, they're feeling, filling, but they are being subdued. Do you see it? Do you see the contrast? God said, you are to subdue, you are to control, you are to grow, you are to steward that which I have given you. We were never meant to be lazy. You see it? I feel like this generation, you young folk, come on now, I love all of you, but I feel like an Edenic blessing to you all is like, can I just have like an iPhone with like an unlimited gift card to the app store? (laughs) I think that would be an Edenic blessing. (laughs) No, it's not about sitting, heaven is not about sitting in, in one place and literally just doing nothing for eternity. Oh, we don't have to work anymore? Yes, Edenic blessing. I'll receive it, Lord. I'll receive it. <laughs> no, it's, it's not about that. It, it's about actually creating 
and inventing and building and doing such without the enemy's uh, resistance. Can you imagine how advanced of a society we would be without pride, without sin, without corruption? Can you imagine a United States government without corruption? Whoa! I mean, that would be amazing. Anyway, uh, I'm, I showed my political cards for two seconds, and I'm putting them back in my pocket. All right, you ready? No, I'm teasing. Look, we know corruption exists, don't we? But the Edenic blessing is you're going to go out and you're going to steward and tame the world and it will be at your fingertips and, and you're just, it's going to blow your mind what gets created. It's never meant for us to do nothing. It's made for us to work, but work in balance with a seventh day rest, with a Sabbath built in. This is going to be incredible, right? But the problem is, is that command to subdue, we see the enemy was now subduing them here in Exodus. Pharaoh is now trying to control. Now, I wanna, uh, I'm gonna read this thing here. This is an excerpt from L. Michael Morales' book on Exodus Old and New. You should read the book, but I'll give you a little snippet of it. I've always heard that Egypt is a picture of the world. How many have heard that? Egypt is a picture of the world. Okay, if you come from the type of background that I come from, you've heard that and it's been preached that way your whole life. Egypt is the world. Don't go to Egypt. Uh, I think there's a better explanation. I won't come out and flat say that's wrong, but there's, there's a better explanation of what the biblical authors, if, if you were to say to someone in the ancient Near East, Egypt is a picture of, of the world, they would be like, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> they would be like, we know what Egypt is, right? And so hopefully what I'm about to read will, will craft a little bit more of what they were thinking. Now, um, the Bible is a unified story, aka the Bible Project, right? It's a narrative that tells the same story. Everything fits what? Together. I say this a lot. Once you see it, you can't what? Unsee it. What I want you to understand too is that they thought about heaven and hell a little differently than we do. There's this word, this, if you see death or grave or pit, they went down into the grave. Think about, oh, death, where's I sting? Oh, grave, where's I victory? Uh, words like that from Paul. Everything for them connected with this one word, Sheol. They looked at Sheol as the grave or the pit or death. It's the place, it's the underworld. It's the place where if you died, you went there. Especially in this, remember if you think about the New Testament parable where they were talking about the rich man and Lazarus, do you remember they were in a spot where they could see each other? Do you remember that? To them, it was the same place, just different compartments. And so we don't think like, oh, they either went to hell or they went to what? Heaven. It wasn't cut and dry like that. Everybody who died went to the same underworld death experience. And in large in part, because of the backdrop of Genesis 1 through 11, because of exile, because of sin, because of these problems. But it wasn't like a, uh, a, you know, if you have sin, you're going to hell. If you don't, you're going to heaven. Everybody had sin. Everybody fights the same battle and the same struggle. The difference is some people declare their loyalty to Jesus and some people, all right. Some people declare their loyalty to Jesus. Just make sure you're sharing whatever you're passing around back there. Some people declare their loyalty to Jesus and some people don't. Some people decide to live this life for this life only and some people decide to live this life for what? 
the next. First Peter chapter three, I think it's verse 21, it says that Jesus went to Sheol. He went to the heart of the earth and he set captivity captive, he set them free. He addressed this underworld scenario where people would go and he released them to go to heaven. Right, And so the mindset of the biblical authors, mountaintops and gardens, was also you ascend, you go to the place of the gods, and when you die, you go the other direction. You go down to the underworld. And death and Sheol, that perspective is loud and clear in this story and in the Egyptian terminology, and that's what I want you to see, okay? Let me read you this little excerpt here. You really gotta listen fast, because it's 12 o'clock, you know what I'm saying. Listen fast as I talk fast. Seeing Egypt as symbolic of Sheol begins with understanding the cultural context. Skilled in the practice, once you see this, you can't unsee it. Skilled in the practice of mummification, as well as the necessary incantations and other requisites for survival in the afterlife, Egyptians were the leading experts on death, religiously as well as scientifically. It is therefore the biting sarcasm with the Israelites. Fearing destruction at the sea, they cry out, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have brought us out to the wilderness to die? Exodus 14, 11. Why did they say that? Because what Egypt did good was graves. That's the sarcasm. Also, the language of the scripture accords with the notion of Egypt as representing Sheol consistently, watch this, using the verb of descent, yard, into Egypt, and that of ascent, Allah, out of Egypt. As when entering the netherworld, one always descends into Egypt. And the exodus of Israel out of Egypt is nothing less than an ascension. In other words, even if the place they were headed was Egypt, was north, they always said we're going what? Down into Egypt. Don't miss that. When they left Egypt, they were always going back what? Up. They were masters scientifically of mummification. Get on the Google. See what they did with these pharaohs, Right? They understood it more than anyone. They understood death. They scientifically figured out so many different things. I, we even learned, and this will come into, into play next week's, for next week's message, but the, they even could um, figure out the sex of a baby and had abortion practices uh, back then. Back then, during this time frame in the ancient Near East. It's wild. Let's keep going here. Uh, these lines come together, watch this. I couldn't believe, like when I read this, I was like, oh my goodness. These lines come together in the Joseph narrative, which recounts how the Israelites wound up in Egypt. Joseph is sold to a company of Ishmaelites who are bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down, Yard, to Egypt. Unsurprisingly, the caravan headed to Egypt, the land renowned for embalming, is laden with funeral supplies and is traveling downward. You ever thought about that? Isn't that crazy? The band that Joseph was sold into, they're going down to Egypt to sell funeral supplies. As they head down into, Sheol is present. See it? Descending into Sheol, Joseph has figuratively, I'm sorry, descending to the Sheol of Egypt, Joseph has figuratively died. 
so that Jacob later ironically prophesies when he says, I shall descend into Sheol to my son in mourning, for he will indeed descend into Egypt to see his son, yes, and he himself will die in Egypt too. Yet God had promised Jacob, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely cause you to ascend, Genesis 46 verse 4. When God does cause Jacob to ascend out of Egypt, he is brought out embalmed, just as Moses will later bring up Joseph's bones. Indeed, the book of Genesis closes with the death of Egypt, uh, the death of Joseph in Egypt, so Joseph died, and they embalmed him, and he was set in the coffin in Egypt. As with Joseph, moreover, Egypt is a place of exile for Israel. And exile also symbolizes death theologically. Going down into Egypt, Nicholas Wyatt writes, is like going down into the underworld. Being in Egypt is like being in a tomb. He finds an implicit symbolism in the Pentateuch whereby Egypt signified death. It was a symbol of exile signifying the death of the people. With the sea, don't miss this, with the sea Yom Suf serving uh, to divide the land of the dead from the land of the living, Egypt was bracketed by waters of the Nile and the sea. Waters of death in both contexts, the literary place of Egypt between these bookends is pervaded by the symbolism of Sheol, the watery abode of death. Remember, they, they viewed water as chaos and a symbol of what? Death. So to come up out of Egypt, the parting of what we know as the, the Red Sea, would be like a what? Resurrection. Coming up out of Sheol. The most influential literary theorist of the 20th century, Northrop Frye, wrote this. The drowned Egyptian army is the continuous symbolic Egypt of darkness and death, noting that in the New Testament... Both the flood, 1 Peter 3.21, and the sea crossing, 1 Corinthians 10.2, are regarded as types of the sacrament of baptism, which symbolizes death to the old world and being made alive to the new world on the opposite shore. Literally, it is as if Israel had been delivered from the chamber of death in the depths of the sea and then conveyed to God's abode on the holy mountain, Escaping Egypt inevitably involves deliverance out of the waters of death, redemption from Sheol. It is literally the gospel story, death, burial, and resurrection in the Old Testament. It's not a picture of the world. It's a picture of death. It's a picture of Sheol, and they are in exile. When we baptize, we're going to baptize the twins this morning. They, they declared their loyalty to Jesus this week, uh, which is really cool but were buried with him in baptism and the chaotic waters of death is what it's symbolizing they come up out of. This is all throughout our faith. And an understanding of this coming out of exile is important for your faith and for you to understand the context of what Jesus has done for you. Exile here is pictured here in the beginning stages of the Exodus story as difficult and as bitter labor. Do you understand what Jesus has saved you from? Do you understand the, the bondage of death that you have escaped because of the goodness of God? Why do we see this? Remember, exile is a byproduct of fallenness, the forces of darkness, and forbidden alliances that we see in the Genesis 1 through 11. With these things at play, I thought about this New Testament verse this week. Exile is an inevitable future, but God, 
Romans 5, 8, it says, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were what? Yet sinners, Christ what? Died. We, we have to see this motif. The ancient Near East, they understood where they were going. As Joseph was sold, Jacob said, he's as good as what? Dead. Descending in the place that does death better than anybody. Understanding that they were going to sell the funeral supplies. The story is so clear from this picture that as they went to Egypt, they were descending into the underworld. Knowing that they're there, the two cities that they're building, uh, let's see, what, what was it here? Uh, if I scroll back up, Pithom and Ramses, right? The two cities, those were two places that were to hold. Those were essentially temples where Pharaoh would be buried and, and they constructed these to hold supplies for Pharaoh's afterlife, all of the preparation that the Israelites were doing for the Egyptians were to prepare them and their occult practices for death. Sometimes I think we find ourselves in our lives where we think, man, is anything that I'm doing contributing to the kingdom of God? Or is all I'm doing is building a casket? Is all I'm doing just contributing to exile? Am I getting anywhere in life? Has anybody ever found yourself in this place where you're like, yeah, uh-huh. I go to work to what? To make money, to go back to work. And I'm in this vicious, like, cycle. Do you think they felt that way? 450 years, it was prophesied, you're gonna be in exile. Look, man, it's important that we see this. There is hope in this story. As we embark on the Exodus journey, we have to understand where they are. They are literally in a place of suffering and death. It's bigger than just the slavery motif. Do you see it? And, and beyond the slavery motif, what I, what I think we need to see in exercise is that they dread those people. They, they had a, a hatred and a vitriol for the Jews. And what, what, I, what I think about is the Lord eventually leads them out of there. Any place in our hearts, any place in our lives that we hate someone else, that we condemn someone else, that we think we are better than someone else, that is from literally the pit of what? Hell. Do you see what, what we're saying is when, when they have descended down, when they are in this place, when they are in Sheol, they are afflicted, they are oppressed, the enemy will always use you. The forces of darkness don't care who you are. They look at you with detest and they only will pull and extract from you. They could care less about you. God wants to commune and have relationship they want to use, afflict, punish, and oppress. God wants you to fulfill an Edenic blessing and subdue and have dominion over all that he has given us to steward. And the enemy says, no, I will subdue you. We have to see this place that they're in working under oppression. Pharaoh's threefold plan was not only harsh labor, 
Essentially, we see that he was trying to subjugate the males. When that didn't work and they still flourished, he said to all the midwives, remember they, were, they, they had technology that the others uh, didn't have. He said that, uh, look, if it's going to be a, a baby boy in that womb, we're gonna abort that thing. And then guess what? That didn't even work. That's a different, that's for next week, right? Uh, excited to hear that message. But uh, the third thing he says, finally, the midwives aren't even listening to Pharaoh as he's trying to oppress these people. And so then he just has an open edict. He said, anybody that's around, if you see a Hebrew boy two years and under, you're to throw them in the Nile River. Threefold plan to subjugate the males. And guess what? Did that work either? No, it didn't. What the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. I, I need everybody to kind of stop real quick. Go ahead, whatever we gotta do. <laughs> that was just bad timing. I need everybody to, <laughs> poor Mr. Dan. I think he just peed himself right there on the front row. <laughs> oh, that was funny. <laughs> I need us all to kind of pull up right here and as we land the plane for application from today. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. The ancient Near East, these Israelites, they knew where they were headed. This was like, I'm literally, it's kind of like Baltimore, descending into, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I love the city. <laughs> they understood Egypt was all about death. They spent their entire life preparing for their death, preparing for their version of the afterlife. But the Israelites had a relationship with God. They knew Yahweh had promised them. Listen to me, church. This is it right here. They knew Yahweh had promised them an inheritance that was far beyond anything that this world could offer. Here's the point. Egypt had one life, and they prepared for their death. Here's, here's the statement that I want to give to you. Don't contribute to your own demise by settling for one life instead of two. Don't contribute to your own demise. Whether you're building a grave for someone else or for yourself, don't contribute to your own demise by settling for one life instead of two. What we find in this story is that the Israelites didn't lose hope. There was always someone called to lead them out. Why? Because they knew that the promised land was coming. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of the gospel. Here's what I want to tell you. Many, many people today in this life, they're just living for this life. Maybe you're caught. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about, is there anything in your life that is subjugating you? Is there anything in your life that is subduing you? Remember, the, the Edenic blessing is that you're fruitful and you multiply. You fill and you subdue. You steward what God has given you. And what I'm, what I'm here to tell you is when Abraham was led out of Egypt, he was led out of Egypt with what? With the plunder, with the spoils. Do we remember from last week after Abraham told his little lie to Pharaoh? And God afflicts Pharaoh's house and eventually Abraham leaves. Abraham leaves a lot richer than when he came. Why is that? Because he went to Sheol not to go there and die, 
but to take what Sheol had, Egypt, and use it for God's promise. What is the picture? The Israelites will eventually make their exodus out of Sheol. They will pass from death into what? Into life. And when they pass, when they go, they're going to be bigger and greater than when they came. Your suffering, your affliction is but for a moment. If you're caught in this life and you think this is it, if you're caught in this trap, if you're caught in this loop, understand that there's something greater on the other side. God watching you. He sees you. He knows your name. He's preparing an inheritance that's far greater. Something that cannot be taken. But right now you're in death. But right now you're oppressed. But right now you're afflicted. Maybe you're in that 450 years. Listen, here's here's what I think you need to do. I think you need to think and ponder and pray this morning. Here's a verse that came to mind for us and in our application. The book of Matthew, it says this, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters since he will either hate the one or love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Matthew 6, 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. I thought about us and in our context, right, as Americans, and I thought, what are some things that control us? What are some things that keep us in exile? Pharaoh's got you where he wants you. But understand this, Pharaoh doesn't love you. Pharaoh's using you to build his underground grave because he doesn't believe in the afterlife the way you believe in it. It's time Christians start living like you have a savior. It's time Christians start living in exile like you're going to go through an exodus. But a lot of Christians are like, my marriage is just so awful. (laughs) I'll be here at the same time next week to tell you how bad it is. (laughs) Oh, well, I just never, how you doing? Oh, I'm great. I'm just broke. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm so broke. Do you need anything? Nope, I just like being broke. Can I buy you lunch? Nope, I'm fasting. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> just thought that was funny. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow, church fast ends. <laughs> Man, how many are having a big old Coca-Cola classic tomorrow? I know I am. Let's go. <laughs> I think I'm done with soda. After t- 21 days of living this way, I'm like, I feel a lot better now than how I'll feel tomorrow if I indulge. I think I'm just going to keep this thing going. Church, do you understand what I'm saying? Christians, Christians that say, well, nope, I, I just... Nobody likes me. Did you have a good week? I worked. Enough said. Okay. I just kept thinking about this. They knew where they were at. They were literally in the underworld, but they knew what promise was there. Can we hardly call America the underworld? We got it good. The problem with America is that we have it too good. It's bad when we have it too good. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're enslaved to the good. We're enslaved to the plenty. 
We're serving at this point finances and money because it's like, yeah, but instead, do you understand what a church can do if we looked at finances and money, muddy? <laughs> finances and money as the plunder of the world that we could take and deploy for God's goodness? For God's kingdom, if we lived this life and said, God, I don't want to just spend my time living in this loop of making money to, to just spend it to go back to work and, and I don't have anything that gives me fulfillment, wouldn't it be something if you lived your life and you helped somebody else? You did and brought life to a death situation. Everybody else that doesn't know Jesus, they're preparing for their grave. Do you understand that? How miserable is that? And Pharaoh was doing it beautifully. And God says, let me, let me show them how Yahweh is different than Ra. Let me show them how I don't just conquer the waters for myself, but I part the waters for my people and for those that love me. Church, we're missing the point. If you're not living for two lives and you're only living for one, you're compromising what the Lord has given you and you're contributing to your own demise. Hey, let's live for two. Sound good? Let's live for two. Oh, let's put a fork in this thing, you know? Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30 has really a benediction here. It says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, take my yoke Learn it from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If, you're, if you've become a chronic complainer, then you're just living to die. Maybe you haven't slid in the yoke in a while. I'm not saying we're not in a place of death. Look, it's happening all around us. I'm not saying that we're not in exile, but we know why we're in exile. But I'm saying, have we lost faith in a God that leads us out? Have we lost faith in a God that says, the grave is not the end? Egypt, I'm, Joseph, I'm taking you literally down to the pit. But guess what? Jesus is going to bring you out. Come on. Look, it's time we get back in the yoke. If you feel tired, if you feel restless, if you feel like the burdens of being in Egypt are too much for you to bear, Let's go back to Jesus. Let's get back in the yoke with him. Let's, let's understand that we have a God that says, yeah, pick up your cross, but he has already gone before us. He already went to the chambers of death so that we could have what? Life. Thank you for watching and joining us for our church online. I pray this experience was just what you needed today. If you made a decision for the Lord to follow Christ, or if the Lord did something in your heart that was special today, we would love to hear about it. Post it in the comments, send us a message, and we'll reach out to you. Have a wonderful week, and God bless.